Lord God, when we come to this word, this eternal word that speaks to us, it speaks across cultures, across ages, and across circumstances. This is the place we come, even when the world gets in turmoil. We come to this word, this living and active word, and ask you, through this word, by your spirit, to instruct our spirits so that we can follow after you. Enable us to do that great work, that ordinary work that produces extraordinary results once again today. Give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lauren and I, as many of you know, and I, I think I shared it a couple of weeks ago, had the opportunity to go out and visit our daughter, Danny, who is living in Wyoming. And while we were there, we had the, the opportunity to take a trip over to Yellowstone and enjoy uh, all that was and is in Yellowstone. It was a great feast for the eyes. You drive in and you're immediately confronted by the beautiful waterfalls and the rivers that are going through, the, the elk and the buffalo that are roaming all around, the trees and the lakes that are there, the canyons uh, that are there, uh, which, which my daughter and my wife love to get very close to the edge, and I have to just leave. I just I can't take it uh, when they're there. But it's all beautiful and a great feast for the eyes. But if you've, if you've studied your geography or your geology or you've watched one of the science programs about Yellowstone that are available on TV, you know that what makes Yellowstone so unique is not simply that which is on top, but really what's going on underneath of Yellowstone is the amazing thing. It is, of course, if you know this, a, a super volcano. And underneath of it, there is evidence of this incredible power, and it, it, it bursts forth from the ground at all ports, points as you drive around Yellowstone and get to see it. And of course, you see the amazing geysers. That's the first place that we kind of rushed to. We took our first pictures of Buffalo and then rushed in from the southern entrance uh, to see Old Faithful. We were patient uh, and saw Old Faithful erupt. And then there are other things that are perhaps not as dramatic as the geysers, but you drive around and you see these beautiful crystal clear pools of blue and orange water, and they're the hot springs that are coming up, and they look like they're still, but there's, there's just heat that's emanating from them. Then you go a little bit further and you get to these cauldrons of, of churning, gurgling, mud, they call them mud pots, where the earth is just moving underneath and you can sense what is going on underneath of you. And then there are the sulfur vents that will almost make you sick to your stomach as you get near them and you just, the sulfur smell is pouring out of them. There's enormous power that is at work underneath of Yellowstone. Walking through the book of Acts reveals a similar reality. At least the meta that's the metaphor I'm going to work for us today. The angel, when they were released or upon their release, told them to speak to the people all the words of this life. It's a great description. There's any number of ways the angel could have phrased this, but speak to them all the words of this life, churning underneath of the events of Acts is this life. This power is at work there this salvation, this gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've seen this now in a number of sermons 
uh, that are given both publicly or to the leaders privately as part of a trial or part of a testimony. But I'll just read for us again verses 30 through 32 as Luke really condenses now again the message of the gospel to just a few quick points to summarize that which Peter is saying here and has said in other contexts, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him as, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We're witnesses and the Holy Spirit is witness and the Holy Spirit will be given to all those who obey him. Three short sentences that are recorded for us here to summarize this life the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. Proclaim this life to the people. A volcano is impersonal. Jesus is a person. And so as the apostles explain this, what they're saying is we realize that right now we're explaining this to you, the leaders of Israel, and you can't see the one that we're talking about. But we're his witnesses and the Holy Spirit is his witness, and the things that you see taking place around you are evidence of the power, which is not in this case underneath, like a volcano, but a power which is instead over. The power which is over reigning all, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, a power over the earth. Luke is teaching us the many ways in Acts in which this power is made manifest to the world. Some of them are clear. They're, they're overt and they're dramatic, and we've seen them. We see them in this chapter. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Some of them are covert. They're nearly imperceptible, like the thousands of earthquakes that take place in Yellowstone in any given year. They're imperceptible. Later in Acts, of course, Luke will record Paul saying, in him we live, move, and have our being. Well, one might overlook living, moving, and having being and saying, that's not evidence of God. Imperceptible, covert, but evidence of the very power of this life. So I'm going to use this to structure our sermon. We're going to look at the geothermal activities of Acts chapter 5. Acts, uh, Acts chapter 5 starts with a sulfur vent. We looked at it last week. A sulfur vent, something that stinks. Well, that was Ananias and Sapphira, the story that we looked at last week. It is evidence of the power of God, but it's stinky. It's not a pleasant thing, and you get to it, and you would like to move on. Luke takes time to record for us the incident. He gave Barnabas one or two verses in terms of a good example, he gave Ananias and Sapphira 11 verses to show what happened there. But there's an immediate transition. We move on from the sulfur vent to what I'm going to call a geyser, and uh, the way I'm going to work these geothermal activities here in five, to a geyser, something that's immediately visible. You see what's going on, and you look at that thing, and you go, wow, that is amazing. So the geysers that he records for us are in verses 12 through 16 and then in verse 19. So what are the geysers that are going off that are so visible as evidence of the power underneath? Well, many signs and wonders were being done among the people by the apostles. 
The apostles themselves were held in high esteem. Believers were added to the church more than ever had been before to this point. Sick people and demon-possessed people are being healed. And then, of course, in verse 19, we have the angel of the Lord sent, and he delivers them out of the prison. And we get this great irony as this goes on, and I'm not going to go into the details of the, the, the ironic setting that is here, but of the power of this life as opposed to the perceived power of the leaders. The leaders look like to the world and to everybody else, they're the ones in control. They have the power to arrest or to free these men. But you get this sense of, wait a minute, actually, what, what we're talking about here is turned on its head. They actually don't have any power at all because they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with these guys. Lo and behold, they're back in the temple doing the exact same thing for which they had been arrested in the first place. Now, this is geyser-like activity. There's nothing covert about this. It is, it is out there. It is overt. It is on display for everybody to see. And as such, it is an authentication of apostolic authority. It is God's way of saying, listen to these men. They are from me. They are equipped by me. And hear their teaching on which I am building the church through the power of the Holy Spirit working through them. Through his reigning power, and this is what they're giving a picture of here, Jesus is going to draw all people unto himself, and he's going to restore that which is broken. So where there's hurt, where there's pain, where there's sickness, where there's disease, Jesus is going to restore that. He is going to heal all of that sickness. We read this section that I just read for us here, or summarized for us, verses 12 through 16. And we may think to ourselves that this sounds familiar to us. This kind of activity sounds familiar to us. We have now been in Luke slash Acts for five and a half years. Fall semesters, five and a half years. But had we read it all together, it would be closer and it would be reminiscent to us of the ministry of Jesus. We would hear this description and think, okay, that is what Jesus is doing, or that is what is now being done, and it even seems greater than what Jesus did or what Jesus was doing at a particular time. So it feels very familiar to us. And there's a reason for this, and I've, I've, I've etched it out a little bit, and I've got to come back to it again uh, now. I've etched it out in earlier sermons. But as Elisha followed Elijah and received Elijah's spirit, then Elisha performed miracles and even greater signs and wonders than Elijah himself had. As Moses, for the people, performed great signs and wonders in bringing the people out of Egypt, so at his death, Joshua receives the spirit that was upon Moses so that he now can do the even greater work of leading the people into the land which God had promised to them. So now, the image and the parallel is exactly the same. 
So the one who has been named leader and savior, and we'll come back to that in just a moment, the one who is called leader and savior pours out his spirit upon the apostles, and these signs and wonders are indicators for us, pointers for us, of the authority that they now possess. They have been given that which he had. But all of them, whether we're talking about Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, all of them, as they do these wonders, have the same desire in them. They want us to appreciate the hope that should be stirred up in us when we see healing take place, but they want to point us to that which is eternal, namely the Word of God. Because these signs and wonders are, in and of themselves, they are limited. They did not extend to every single person throughout everybody's life. They were temporary. So someone was healed of a particular sickness, of a particular disease. At some point later in their lives, they contracted some sickness or disease or old age caught up with them, and they died. And these signs and wonders are evidentiary. They are given to point us to something beyond the present. We're not just supposed to say, great, I'm healed, thank you. What we're supposed to say is this is a guarantee of a greater healing that is to come. One that is not temporary, that is not limited, that is not only evidentiary, but is part of bringing us into wholeness, shalom, as the people of God with others. So these things point us to hope. Imagine for a moment that we were a church in a place that only had a fragment of the Gospel of Acts. And the only fragment that we had of the Gospel of Acts was verses 12 through 16 and 19. 19 is the one that, where the angel takes them out uh, and releases them from the prison. Imagine what that would do to our image of the early church, how that would distort for us what the early church was really like and how it would distort our own expectations of what our church should be like. We would be looking for geysers all the time. We would be looking for this kind of evidence of the faith, and if we didn't see it, if we didn't find it, we would either blame ourselves for not being faithful enough or holy enough, or we'd say God must not exist. The geysers are pointing beyond themselves, and they are not alone in giving us hope and helping to see us what we can expect in the world to come. That said, everybody likes to go, we went to Old Faithful first. That said, Luke puts us immediately back in the car and drives us to the next part in the book of Acts. The gurgling the growling, the churning mud pots, which I am using here to refer to the mounting opposition that is going on in the church. We see it in this passage. We see it in the jealousy that is described, the public arrest, the verbal prohibitions against the teaching and the ministry of the apostles, the desire to kill them, and the more moderate, okay, well, let's be moderate here, 
let's not kill them, let's beat them, which is essentially, let's give them 39 lashes. The display of the power of this life, this life, remember, this life here is referring to Jesus and all of his death, resurrection, and ascension. This life creates mud pots in this world. It creates fissures in the otherwise unified opposition of the world to the king and his son. The earth convulses. It's in turmoil. And you and I, together with the apostles, together with Jesus, Elijah, Elijah, Joshua, Moses, you and I are going to get stuck in the mud pots of this world. The mud will cling to us. It will engulf us. It will threaten to swallow us alive as the people of God. And sometimes we will be delivered. And it'll be wonderful and we'll celebrate. God comes through an angel and releases them out of prison. It's like Jesus. Sometimes he was delivered. Remember, remember early in the ministry of Jesus when he goes to Nazareth, he opens the scroll, he reads from Isaiah, and he says to him, you're going to ask me to do signs and wonders. You're going to say, hey, do these miracles here like you've been doing in other places that we've heard about. You're going to say to me one day, physician, heal yourself. And you know what he does? He pulls out Elijah and Elisha. He says, let me explain something to you from Elijah and Elisha and the ministry that they had to the unique people to whom they had that ministry. And the Jews are infuriated. The people in the hometown, they are infuriated with him. And what do they try to do? They try to get to Jesus and push him off a cliff. But Jesus, and we don't know how this took place in Luke, Jesus slips through the crowd. He comes out of it. Or other times, they pick up stones to kill him. But Jesus hid himself and escaped. Sometimes, like our Savior, like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, we will be delivered out of the mud pots of this world. And when that happens, we will rejoice. And we'll call it an answer to prayer. And we will be glad together, as the early church was, as anybody would be who escapes from a situation like that. Like Moses got the people out of Egypt. Like the psalmist in Psalm 20, which we read this morning as our call to worship. This great hymn of deliverance when it looked like it couldn't take place. But here's the message of Acts. The message of Acts is that sometimes we will also not be delivered out of the mud pots of this world. At least as you take that from an earthly perspective. Because the apostles, while there is a miraculous release of them at night, are rearrested, brought in, and beaten. Jesus is crucified and killed. 
and I don't want to steal the thunder too much, but you know the story here. And in a chapter and a half, Stephen's going to be killed. Stephen's not going to get a miraculous escape. We're not going to say, look at how Stephen, right at the last minute when they were getting ready to stone him, got out of this situation. There are mud pots in this world, and sometimes you are delivered, and sometimes we are not delivered from them. Nevertheless, the very presence of the mud pots in this world, the apostles take to be evidence of the reigning power of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is in opposition to the kingdoms of this world. The battle scenes, the mud pots, are evidence of the kingdom power, otherwise things would be calm. Yes, the gospel brings with it ultimate peace. But it brings that ultimate peace only through a sword that divides. The peaceful gospel disturbs the peace. And that is because the latter peace is an illusory peace. Or it is the peace of those who are found in opposition to the king. The world would rather progress smoothly, but the gospel shakes and quakes the earth. And therefore, Luke and the apostles do not interpret, they don't interpret the opposition, the sicknesses, the beatings, the martyrdoms, as signs of an impotent kingdom But instead, like the death of Jesus Christ, they recognize that in the very opposition, the gospel is actually made known. It's uncovered. It is seen to be what it actually is when there is opposition. Things are revealed through the apostles being beaten that could never be revealed in Acts 5, 12 through 16 if everything is going well. If everybody just keeps coming to Christ, you just keep teaching, you just keep healing, there are things that cannot be learned. The kingdom comes. For for Luke, as he looks at this, comfort, lukewarmness, and ease, those are the contraindications to the gospel. Because the real gospel brings with it turmoil and difficulty and pain and beatings and imprisonment. As Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. We would like to think otherwise. We would like to think that we can form ourselves and our posture and our relationship in the world so that they don't actually hate us. Because who wants to be hated? But the indication that Jesus says that you've got the gospel right is, at least in some circumstances, to a certain extent, that they hate you. Because they hated me. Which brings us to the last geothermal feature in Acts chapter 5. We might perhaps pass by it unnoticed, but they are the hot springs 
when I was talking about crystal clear blue water, orange sides. They look calm, but they're hot, they're deep, and they're beautiful. They're more beautiful than the geysers when you stop and look at them. Luke says that this power that is not under but is over the world, this power of God is revealed in how we handle the heat. They were arrested, not once, they were arrested twice and did not act out violently. They did not stir up rebellion and I suggest to you that is different than what they did however many months ago when, Peter, when, when Jesus was arrested and Peter acts out violently. They did not resist it. They learned from their Savior. They spoke boldly when they were confronted. They said again, you killed him. But even for you, even for you, who killed this man, who hung him on a tree, repentance and the forgiveness of sins is, is there for you right now. God has made him leader and savior. And though you killed him, he will forgive. Prince and savior of the world that he is. Their prayers from the last chapter that they would continue in boldness are being answered. They continued their teaching ministry even when they were forbidden to do so, saying, the Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. And finally, there is in this deep spring then, in one of these deep hot springs, there is something welling up to eternal life. And it is said for us in the words that are really spoken for the first time of any besides Jesus. They left the presence of the council having been beat, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Counted worthy to suffer dishonor makes no sense. There's no logical way to make sense of that statement. In fact, it sounds crazy when you talk about rejoicing in a situation like that. But what is dawning on them is this, this grand fact that whether in the healing ministry, the teaching ministry, their arrest, their opposition, their beatings, they're being made like their Savior. And that's good news. Because if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so when they, when they get beat, a light dawns on them that otherwise would not have dawned. And it's the light that says, wait a minute, my Savior got beat. I'm following in the steps of Jesus. The life of Jesus is a template and it was foreshadowed, this template, in the life of Moses. It was foreshadowed in the life of Elijah and Elisha. 
And now that template has been taken off of my Lord and Savior who's been exalted to the right hand of God and the template is placed upon the apostles themselves and they feel the template and as the template is outlined in their lives, it is in the shape of a cross. And they say, this is good. I rejoice. I'm being made like Jesus and the template has been taken off of the apostles and the template is now placed on the church of Jesus Christ. The template is placed now upon us. It is cross-shaped. It doesn't look like power yet. So Luke gives us multiple images here. Takes us on a tour of the powerful manifestation of this life. The section that I read, beginning in verse 12, started great. Signs, wonders, miracles, healings. Ended with a beating. For Luke, that's the manifestation. Gamaliel's response is, okay, let's calm. Let's be calm. Let's wait and see what happens here. If it's from God, it'll continue, and you can't stop it anyway. If it's from man, it'll fiddle out, fizzle, fizzle out. Let's wait and see. Now, sometimes that's good advice, wait and see, in life. A lot of wisdom in that sometimes, not here. Not when you're dealing with the claims of Jesus Christ. The gospel, this life, will not allow you to accept the position of tourists driving along in your car to the next spot. Let me get out, take a look. That's really nice. Let me take a couple pictures, get back in my car, drive to the next one, take a few more pictures. That's what Gamaliel wants to do. I'll just take a few pictures. We'll just watch this thing as it goes along. It'll be fine. I'm going to stay aloof from it and see what happens but it demands a response. And that is why Peter, every opportunity that he has, says, I want the response. The response is believe, repent, and obey. The next eruption of Yellowstone will be cataclysmic. The next time we see the Son of Man, it will be too. Now, now is the time for belief and repentance. Gamaliel, today is the day of salvation. Not some other day, because we don't know if we have some other day. And brothers and sisters, as the heat gets turned up on our lives, and it gets turned up in all sorts of different ways in our lives, Rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. May the Lord so fill us with his spirit, with his power, that we may give testimony to the name. At our best hour, 
and at the very worst hour of our lives. And may through that, the Lord add to his church. Let's pray.